It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, a mark, a yen, a buck, or a pound. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, guys, uh, you know, you, you guys like science, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah? Big on the science. I prefer mad science. Right. Well, I mean, who but doesn't? But plain science is okay. Right, yeah. When, when you can't get mad science, plain science will do in a pinch. And uh, here's the thing about science, you see, it's a... Uh, it's something that requires an investment. It's not, we haven't reached a point in the world where we can just study things for free and mankind can benefit from our studies. It turns out that for, to, to conduct really good science, you often need a lot of the cold hard cash. Yeah, things cost money, especially mad science, I would say. Yeah, no, that's those uh, various uh, Tesla coils and, uh, and Jacob's ladders, they don't pay for themselves. Yeah, well, I mean, you can sometimes get test subjects at a cheaper hourly rate if you <laughs> promise them nightmarish hallucinations. This is true. If you read any of the signs on MARTA trains <laughs> for college students who are desperate for money, uh, yeah. yeah, so, but, but uh, human experimentation out of the way, you still have materials costs and yeah, things yeah. like that. You, uh, if you've ever done a, a science fair as a kid, 
You know, you had to buy that three-paneled cardboard backdrop. Right. And those uh-huh. things ain't cheap. Uh, lots well, of baking soda. Glue yeah. mm-hmm. and vinegar. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, and beyond that, I mean, we're making light of it. But obviously, there are lots of different costs involved. Everything from salaries or, or at least some sort of compensation for the people doing the work because, you know, they have to pay bills and things to paying for the, the labs, for paying for all the materials, uh, and paying people to make sure and quality check all the research to be certain that everything was done properly so that whatever findings come out as a result are logically based upon the experiment itself. I mean, the whole process is expensive. So sure. where, where does that money come from? Oh, traditionally from from three different kind of branches. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you you got you got governments. That's a big one. Uh-huh. Well, actually, I'd back up before we hit governments. Okay. I'd say traditionally you may have also have independent wealth, sure, right? Sure, sure. So a lot of scientists throughout history, certainly not all, but a lot of people who made scientific discoveries were people who had leisure, who or, had uh, or disposable they had a, income, or they had a patron right. who was le- mm-hmm. who had that kind of disposable income. In fact, patronage was a big way of doing science before we got into the the giant. Uh, academies and things of that nature. Uh, sure. These days, that would probably fall under kind of the private grant kind yeah. of area, w- which was going to be our, our second topic. But we can just mention now that, that sure. there are lots of private foundations out there that that have it within their scope to specifically fund research. That's right. And right. So it, it, you know, a few hundred years ago, it might have been like a duke or right. like the church or something like that. Now it's maybe more like some organization, a, yeah. a nonprofit organization. Right. And in these cases, the the approach of getting funding from a private grant, a private organization, is not that different from applying for a government grant yeah, for so science. How's the government work? Well, <laughs> <laughs> how, do, how does government funded science work? Thank what you a for loaded specifying. question. Yeah, no. Uh, so essentially, you have pools of money that have been allotted by the United States, this is within the United States. Obviously, other countries are different. But in the United States, you have pools of money that are allotted for specific purposes. For instance, scientific research. And that's overseen by different departments like the National Science Foundation or the National Institutes of Health, et cetera. Department of Energy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Even Department of Defense has a big one, obviously. Mm-hmm. DARPA, they, that whole area has got its own uh, budget for research. Now, all of these are meant for specific types of applications. Sometimes they're pretty broad general categories like the National Science Foundation is pretty broad. National Institute of Health, obviously, that's more health related. So you have these pools of money that then are overseen by committees. And so in order to get at that money, you have to submit a grant application and hope that yours is chosen over all the other applications coming in, knowing that that pool of money is pretty limited. And sometimes we see those budgets cut year over year. It all depends upon what uh, politicians feel is important from one year to the next. My guess is that the general public believes that that money is more abundant than it actually is. It is not, and it is not easy to get to. But we'll cover that later on in the podcast. Mm -hmm. Okay, but so both like a private patron or organization and the government, they're potentially likely to fund your exploratory science just to discover things about the world. But I'd imagine there are also groups 
that are mainly interested in how science is going to make you some money. Yeah, those would be uh, corporations. Yeah. Really. I, I wrote down private companies, but corporations is, is more accurate because it doesn't have to be a private company. It could just be a, it could be a publicly traded corporation that funds Certainly. research. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, a, a corporation is usually so funding the, the private sector. Yeah. Funding science for a, a specific they're hoping for a specific outcome, something that can be monetized down the road. Uh, and obviously that comes with its own set of pros and cons, which we'll get into a mm-hmm. little bit later. Uh, and you can devil's advocate that uh, if you can make that phrase into a verb, that that, <laughs> that that a given company might in fact be interested in promoting research for the good of mankind sure. as well. Right. But it's also it's, it's always going to be sticky territory. Thank you for advocating devilishly, Lauren. <laughs> Uh, but Anytime. no, but SpaceX would be a good example of that, right? SpaceX, private company, uh, but a lot of at least the the PR coming out of SpaceX is along those lines, and I'm I'm willing to believe that there is a an actual sincere spot in the heart of that company. Doesn't necessarily mean everything they do is altruistic. I don't mean to go that far, but to suggest that uh, they are very much interested in the pursuit of science beyond just hey, here's how we can make some more cash. Now, an emerging way of paying for science is crowdfunding, which, of course, uh, most people think of things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Those are the two big ones, right? And, and more for things like a like you, you've got a pebble, Jonathan, I do like, have a like, pebble. A, like goofy gadgets. I mean, or useful gadgets. I was about but, to say, my pebble's not goofy. <laughs> it's you, gorgeous. OK, explain but, but, what a pebble is. Uh, oh. Well, it's a little rock or it's also a smartwatch. It was a popular crowd crowdfunded smart extremely popular now now granted i i ordered mine after the crowdfunding i was not one of the cool kids who backed it back in the kickstarter days even though it is a kickstarter edition <laughs> but but many kickstarter projects are for uh, you know artists or musicians right. or or small technology companies who are trying to put a product to market not right. not necessarily for research so so how does this research thing come into the it's, equation it's interesting because it's one of those it's one of those applications of the kickstarter model that at least at first glance, does not seem to fit the parameters of what Kickstarter was all about. But Kickstarter has been pretty flexible with those. I mean, there are examples of projects that have been approved on Kickstarter that, again, don't necessarily fit the terms of service that you you are supposed to agree to when you submit a project, knowing that that project could be denied. I mean, not everything that gets submitted to Kickstarter is approved. But there have been several cases of science-based projects that were uh, submitted to Kickstarter and were approved and either funded or didn't fund. Um, and Kickstarter is not the only one. There's actually one called Experiment, which is just for scientific research uh, and various scientific projects. So there are some that are specific for that. But Kickstarter, I think, is the the most well-known of crowdfunding, with maybe Indiegogo taking second place. Sure. So – um, at any rate, there are a lot of different examples. The one I wanted to talk about specifically that made the news not too long ago was uh, KickSat. So I guess the kick is for a Kickstarter and sat for satellite. And the actual Kickstarter was launched back in 2011. So you might say, well, why the heck is that news now? Well, it's news now because it went from the uh, Kickstarter project phase all the way through funding to Reality. It actually became a thing that then got launched into space. But what the heck was it? So this was a project to launch very, very tiny satellites, 
tiny spacecraft into low Earth orbit. And when I'm talking tiny, I'm talking about like a little bitty square that's a circuit board that only has a few elements on it. And I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, the project co-creator named Zach Manchester, uh, he was a graduate from uh, the aerospace engineering department at Cornell University. The other co-creator was uh, Michael Johnson. And together they developed this tiny spacecraft. They called it Sprite. So each individual spacecraft is a Sprite. And they could be built and launched in low Earth orbit for just a few hundred dollars each. So the idea was that by creating a whole bunch of small ones and then making a delivery system where you could package hundreds of small ones together, you could launch the equivalent of a 100 or a 1,000 satellites for the same price that you would pay for a relatively small piece of equipment that's just one piece to go into space. So kind of quantity over quality in a way because <laughs> these particular spacecraft are not terribly sophisticated. Um, do you guys – you guys have heard about the the Soviet uh, satellite Sputnik, mm -hmm, right? Sure. The first man-made satellite launched into orbit. It, it essentially just – Produced a ping that yes. could be picked up yes. by by radio our, antenna our, and, our, and terrified the Americans. Yeah, oh, it absolutely did because not because it made a ping noise, but because it, it was meant, a very sinister ping. <laughs> mostly, it meant that the Soviet Union had a had missile technology ping. that could reach all the way across the United States. <laughs> there was also this whole issue with Cuba going on at the time, but anyway, so. My uh, our former coworker Chris Paulette used to call it the the, the sphere what beat um, <laughs> is essentially what Sputnik was, and that's you know again it didn't do much other than send out this little ping message to just say I'm here yeah I'm here it's proof that this is a man made object in orbit. Well, the the Kicksat Sprite spacecraft are pretty similar in the sense that that's pretty much all they can do. They only have a couple of antenna. Uh, a microcontroller, a radio, and some solar cells that allow it to gather power from sunlight. Cool. And all it really does is transmit its own name, which you can, you know, if you were to back this project, you could actually name your sprite. Uh -huh. So it would send out that message over and over, and plus a few bits of data. So not that different from Sputnik. Right. You know, there wasn't it wasn't a practical application. It's more of a proof of concept. And the idea being that further, more sophisticated spacecraft could be developed in the future, assuming that this one proved to be uh, successful. Oh, sure. And and also, I mean, these these are very, very small, which is impressive in terms of just circuit board technology sure. and, and the way that things have advanced since, for example, Sputnik back in right. the. <laughs> yeah. 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 Where you don't have a, a giant silver ball going around the earth. Yeah. No, it's pretty exciting. Um, and then the, the Kicksat itself was the delivery system. So it looked like a, like a, kind of like a bread box. This is a big rectangular thing that could hold hundreds or thousands of these sprites. And then at the appointed time, the, the, uh, the various doors on this would open up and launch this the space cloud of sprite. Yeah. Yes. You get a cloud of sprite. Actually, a cloud of sprites, but <laughs> close enough. And, uh, so the the whole idea was to be able to to launch these, then make sure you could actually locate them and track them and uh, see that the project was, in fact, uh, a viable one. It's, that would mean that they could build on it in the future. The goal was just $30,000. And I say just because when we talk about space projects, $30,000 is really not that much oh, yeah. at all. Um, it was a very successful project. It ended up getting more than twice what they were asking for. They got seventy four thousand five hundred eighty six bucks, 
Don't know who threw in the $6, but that was pretty cool of them. Uh, <laughs> and in total, uh, in May 2014, uh, the Kicksat satellite, the first one ever, uh, carried 104 sprites, uh, courtesy of a SpaceX launch. I already mentioned them once in this podcast, but that's the, the company that actually launched the rocket that carried the Kicksat. It was a CRS-3 rocket, and it was actually on the way to the ISS, the International Space Station. So it oh, was... Oh, so it just doubled up in, in... Yeah, they hitched a ride. Huh. They did their little, uh, thumb out the, on the side of the highway. Sad Hulk music playing in the background, and this rocket picked him up. Elon Musk was like, yeah, sure, come along. Yeah, he's like, dude, we're totally going that way. Come on, (laughs) hop in. So the only thing is that there are a couple people who have said that maybe this project is not the best thing in the world. Not not for this particular implementation, but because of uh, implications down the road, being Uh that – yeah, like like space debris, like you're yeah. you're purposefully launching a couple hundred useless bits of technology into yeah. an already crowded airfield. Yeah, that would be the space that, field. That, that would definitely be the criticism, right? Yeah. I mean, no, we're not saying that the spacecraft are useless. We're just saying that's kind of what the critics would say. And uh, and you know the the response is that the spacecraft are designed to deteriorate; their orbits deteriorate rapidly. So within a week or two, they would be burning up and reentry and not be an issue in in space. They're not going high enough in orbit for them to for, to stabilize, right? Yeah. Or to or to or yeah, that would take quite a bit of ways, or to uh, just become an issue, like getting in the way of other communication satellites or anything like that. However. So while this particular implementation is not a problem in that sense, the worry is that by proving that this is a viable option, we might see lots more stuff get launched into space over time, and that, in aggregate, could become an issue at some point. Now, granted, that's saying, like, we shouldn't do this thing because this other thing may or may not happen. And that's that's a tough argument to make. It's very discouraging and, and sort of a pessimistic view of what could happen. Mm-hmm. But it's still something to think about. It's something to consider when moving forward is let's at least acknowledge that that's a possibility before we hit the launch button, because then we can still be responsible while continuing research. We don't want to we don't want to discourage people from doing science. We just yeah, want to yeah. do it responsibly. But we can form a plan this way. And yeah, right. Exactly. So that's not the only Kickstarter science project that's out there. In there are fact, actually a few. Well, in fact, there have been other satellite projects yeah. through Kickstarter. The uh, Do you remember the Planetary Resources ARCID project? Right. Yes. Yeah, where they wanted to launch small satellites. And, and through Kickstarter, they gave people the chance to help aim the satellites at certain funding levels or to have their picture displayed on a on a picture taken by the satellite up over the curve of the Earth. Right. Yeah, that was a really cool way of trying to get uh, public support behind a project. Um, another one that was pushed by one of the co-founders of Kicksat, Michael Johnson, you know, I mentioned him, uh, was called Pocket Spacecraft. Now, that was a follow-up project to Kicksat, which had... Uh, the, at its root of an even smaller spacecraft than than the little sprites. So tinier form factor. It was uh, supposed to be more um, sophisticated. It was called Scout. Mm-hmm. But uh, this one was going to travel to the moon. And they held a Kickstarter, but that one did not fund. However, the uh, the project gained the interest of private investors who then poured about $500,000 into it. Oh, wow. Were these private investors wearing long robes with funny hats and carrying umbrellas? Not that I know of. <laughs> Sorry, I'm making a little journey to the moon. Yeah, I, I, I get the joke, but as far as I know, 
They, I, as far as I know, they were not um, dressed in such a manner, but it's possible. I was not there. Kickstarter doesn't really necessarily make you, you know. It doesn't disclose the fashion of the participants right, all the time. Right. Yeah. And I wasn't there for the private investment, so it could be. We, You know what? Let's just say yes. Yes, they were, in fact, doing that. Another science project uh, that appeared on Kickstarter was Songbird, which uh, – it, while it was a songbird migratory pattern Kickstarter, it was really kind of a cool thing. This idea of putting uh, tiny little geolocators on the California hermit thrush uh, it was a $2,000 goal and it funded. And this was the whole idea was just to find out where these birds go when they travel in the winter huh. because they would always return to the same spot. But no one was entirely certain exactly where they would end up. And so by putting these little geolocators on the birds, they're going to learn more about the migratory patterns of this particular species. Um, unless, of course, it weighs them down, in which case they'll stop someplace closer along the way, and then we'll all think that that's where they always went. So, you know, of course, the thing about science, you can't observe without, without affecting changing. it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Granted, that usually applies only to the quantum world, but <laughs> go with me on this one. Another one was uh, plasma jet electric thrusters. Super awesome. You know, an alternate <laughs> alternate propulsion system. This was really just to test out a propulsion system. So not something to that would be built to and build then, and roll out. Yeah. 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 This is more to to try and perfect the actual technology here on Earth so that one day it could be incorporated into spacecraft that would launch from some other means. You know, we would get it up into space and then this would be its propulsion once up in space. So that was really uh, cool. That successfully funded back in 2012. And there were a lot of other projects on Kickstarter. Almost all of them are space-related. Not not every single one, but most of them. Uh, space tends to be one of the ones that people get really excited by. It's pretty inspiring. Yeah. it's it, it, You can see how that could... Uh, get someone's imagination going. You know, it's it's a little harder sometimes to suggest to people, hey, uh, why don't you contribute to this? We're going to be studying this fungus. You know, <laughs> well, I mean, go, well, you know, space is the final frontier. Thrushes are not. No, but it, it was successful. Of course, it did have a very modest goal. Two thousand dollars was not a whole lot. So uh, as far as the pros and cons of all these different kinds of funding strategies go, uh, there's some that are pretty similar. Like I said before, the government and private foundation grants are pretty close in the way that generally you have to go about trying to secure one. So if you're a scientist and you need to get funding for your project. Probably want to write up a grant proposal. Yeah, probably going to write up lots of grant proposals. <laughs> because. And first you need to learn how to do that thing because it's actually really complicated. You no, know, it's not easy. The people who, who specialize in this, I mean, they can spend you know, quite a long time just working on one, let alone multiples. And you'd never want to put all of your scientific eggs in one scientific basket. So you're probably applying for multiple grants, especially if there's a limit on how much can be rewarded and your project has a budget that's greater than that limit, you're going to need multiple grants. So uh, that means that you're going to have to apply to lots of different uh, either government programs or private foundations or a combination of the two. And while you're doing that, you got to keep in mind, all the other scientists are doing the same thing. Everyone is competing for that same pool of money that is represented either by the government or these private foundations. Now, in some cases, private foundations are concentrating on specific types of science. So it may be that your project falls in their purview and you're fine, uh, but some other project doesn't. And so you don't have to compete directly with them, but there's still going to be competition no matter what it is. Oh, yeah. And and. 
as we mentioned earlier, the amount of money that the government has to give, according to budgets, is yeah. not usually greater year over year. No, it's sadly our, our investment in science has either for most years plateaued or taken a dip. Um, there, there are some special initiatives that, yeah. that give more money to very specific areas of research, and right. that's really cool. Right. Yeah. When you get to just broad exploratory science, that's where it starts to get. It's hard. It's a hard sell. Because you're asking people, look, we're specifically wanting to look into the mystery to find out what's there. We don't know what's there, and we don't know that anything we find will be of any practical use. It's hard to convince people to pay for that because well, that's tough. Especially if you're trying to convince bureaucrats and politicians to sure. pay for that. I mean, it's not just anybody. It's people who specifically are uh, very conscious about the budget because they have to answer to the people for it. Right. And a lot of times they're not necessarily sympathetic to what you're trying to research. Especially if they themselves don't have a background in science, yeah. because it's harder, again, for them to have that sympathetic view. You've heard these clips before of politicians making fun of government funded science projects as studying, you know, fruit flies or studying mold. Ha right. ha 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 ha. Right. It's like they just don't understand that. Oh, that's actually something worth studying. We're learning very important things from right. doing that. Yeah, it's well, it's, and again, it's hard to communicate that with someone who doesn't have that same background. Especially, sure. you know, and some scientists are are great scientists, but not great communicators. So that adds right. to the problem. So very complex here. Also, on top of that, it requires scientists to dedicate a, a huge amount of time just to trying. Try to get through all the bureaucracy. In fact, um, according to uh, to Scientific American, uh, in the university realm, so specifically within university research areas, faculty members spend forty percent of their time just going through red tape. Oof. So that leaves only sixty percent to do Science. your actual job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's even if you're just a pure research scientist at a university and you're not also carrying a load of coursework, you know, or you're teaching courses. So 40 percent, I mean, almost half your time just getting through to try and get the funding you need. So you can understand how a lot of people talk about this system being broken or uh, at least inefficient. You know, if not broken, it's it's not working at, at full potential. Um, so that has definitely been a big issue. Next, let's talk about the corporate sponsorships. You know, we mentioned that uh, we get the corporations involved sometimes. Uh, you know, it's it's more frequent that we see corporations look for practical uses of science. So it's even more difficult to kind of just get pure exploratory science uh, funded by corporations. Not that it never happens, but it's rare. Yeah, and there's... I certainly don't want to cast a shadow over all corporate funded science, but there is always a question when you have corporate funded science out there, you know, so you've published results that are favorable to whatever industry it is, the oil industry right. or the, you know, or the, or by logging, you know, or, or towards a specific kind of medication or treatment over yeah. another kind. Right. And it seems to be that you got the money for this experiment from those people. That, right. It seems like mm. there's a, there could be a bias going into the results. Yeah. Like you said, Lauren, I mean, the medical world is a great example because something like 75 percent of all clinical trials in the United States are paid for by com corporations through corporate sponsorships. So if you have a a corporation that has a vested interest in a particular, uh, let's say it's a it's a, a a new experimental drug that they want to have pushed through approval, 
uh, and they're the ones funding a study to make sure that the drug is actually uh, has efficacy, that it's that it actually does what it's supposed to do, that it doesn't have the serious side effects that could potentially uh, sideline it, all that kind of stuff. Um, if they're the ones funding a group of scientists work to do this and the scientists want to continue to be able to do work, there's always the question of was bias introduced? Were the scientists biased at all? Because the source of their the, the funding for the project came from the same company that has a vested interest in the outcome. Well, sure. I mean, but but there is there is something to be said for um for pure research and development and and a lot of the i mean the the kind of clinical trials that we're talking about here are not internal research and development trials mm-hmm. of course a company also to, to to balance it has a vested interest in making sure that the product that they put out doesn't kill people right. um that's they, they bad least, for your customer base yeah they don't want to have to completely you know regenerate generations in order to sell more more product. Yeah, I think typically they are, they will be concerned for liability. So they don't want to try to like hide the fact that this is going to kill people in a way that's traceable to them. It's, it's but more... but I mean more like what I imagine happens more often it, that might be a problem with corporate funded research is selection bias in publishing. So if if they've got a bunch of results that say this drug is very effective in this one study and then this other found that it's not really effective and this other found it it doesn't do any better than placebo, they might publish only one of this set of results. Well, there are really complex laws for how any given research team is allowed to or or should um accept and report the funding that they receive from from any from anyone i mean whether that's that's a government agency or a private foundation or one of these privately held companies or publicly you know what i mean right right um from from a corporation and and there are a whole lot of 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 law, laws internationally nationally locally and at the at the academic like university institutional kind of level mm-hmm. and I mean, technically, most journals, most reputable journals will not publish something if they suspect there is too much of a conflict of interest. However, I mean, you know, it's 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 always it's always messy and it's always difficult to really get to the bottom of of something like whether someone was unbiased. And, you know, keep, keep in mind that bias exists everywhere. There is literally no person on this planet that is completely unbiased and also no organization that's completely unbiased. Even if you're talking about a government or- organization, you're, you're going to have at least a little bit of an agenda there. Well, yeah, I mean, it's we're 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 not totally objective. We can't be. We can be as close. We can try and be as rigorous as possible. To maintain an objective point of view, but it's never going to be a hundred percent. Oh, so. sure. Yeah. I think that's a given. It'd just yeah. be a question of relative levels. Yeah, exactly. Where, where on the spectrum do you yeah. fall? Do and... you fall on, on cronyism or, <laughs> or a reputable scientist? <laughs> yeah. And, and so really what, what that kind of thing comes down to is, is being more educated when, you know, when we as researchers or when you as a consumer of a product or, mm-hmm. Or, or us as a consumer of a product or, or anyone is looking at this research that has been done. It's really critical to, to go to the part where they disclose what funding they have received and check it out. Right. And just, you know, again, just because even if, if, if a, a research team gets their funding from a corporation that has a vested interest, it does not necessarily mean that the science they did was bad or that sure. the findings were inaccurate. It just means that you, know, you might want to look and see if there are any other independent studies that were also right. done. Right. It's a factor. It's it's that grain of salt right. that you really need to take with Right. So then we have crowdfunding, which also has both pros and cons. One of the big pros is that it gets people excited about science. Now, being excited about science is a great thing because not only does it 
uh, allow the scientists to do their work. But that can send a message to government officials to say, you know, this is important and we should invest more in it. So it kind of has it, it has sort of a ripple effect where it's possible if crowdfunding gets to be exciting enough that you could see some more government interest play a part in in funding science down the road. Of course, you could also get the other side where the government says, well, we don't need to fund science. Look, the people are doing it on their own. So let's just get out of that game. Um, <laughs> so there's always there's always that possibility, too. I like to be more of an optimist and hope that we just find new ways of funding science. But Another advantage is that scientists don't have to jump through as many hoops necessarily. Like they, they I'd, have to, I'd imagine that Kickstarter standards are a lot lower than the government's. Well, yeah. So. For one thing, uh, Kickstarter, really what they're looking for is to make sure that you, you are following the rules that Kickstarter has set up. And as we've pointed out already, they're not always that um, rigorous. Exacting. Yeah. <laughs> there are a couple of projects I'm thinking of right off the top of my head that, that – clearly did not meet the goals but not not scientific ones yeah. either but as long as they as long as you do you got a good shot of getting your project approved uh so the first thought i had when we were talking about crowdfunding science as through kickstarter is hey i never got these results i was promised <laughs> well see that's the thing is that you have to you have to define your project properly so that people know what it is you're trying to do and if you are responsible, because this is this is an approach that a project manager has to do. The project manager needs to be able to explain whatever the scientific uh, project happens to be, whether it's uh, any kind of experimentation for for you know just scientific exploration purposes, or if it's building a specific piece of equipment, whatever it is, they have to be very clear on what the goals of the project are. And what a successful outcome will look like. Even if they don't know what the results are, they would say, you know, knowing the results would be the successful outcome. Sure. And so you have to be very good at communicating that because otherwise what can happen is if you're if you're not good at communicating it and people fund these things and then they never hear anything about it ever again, it just very quietly kind of fades away. Let's say that everyone was on the up and up and they actually did whatever it was they said they were going to do. But either it just didn't pan out or... Uh, it wasn't really reported on or afterward. They, or they kind of forgot to get back to their user base and send out that update. Right. Like, like, hey, check it out. We learned that this stuff happened. Right. If, yeah. if that doesn't happen, then that is bad news for everybody because what it does is discourage the folks who supported that particular project from ever supporting another one. So you have to be really careful with crowdfunding as well. You, you've got the fact that you don't have to jump through as many hoops and all you have to do is appeal to people's sense of whatever, what exploration or adventure, whatever your scientific project is related to. Could be conservation, could be anything, really. You have to appeal to that, but then you have to make sure you make good on the promise or else you you run the risk of alienating those people and making things worse for everybody down the road. Right. Well, what I was referring to was all those Kickstarter <laughs> projects, and we all know some that, you know, that they got funded and they got their money and yeah. then whatever okay, happened. Okay, I'm still waiting for all three of my crowdfunded backed smartwatches. <laughs> I got an update on two of them today, and uh, yeah, they're a few months overdue. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, this, in this case, it's not so much, you know, one of the things you have to remember whenever you're backing any kind of crowdfunded project is that you're not really, don't think of it like a store. You know, you're not supposed to think of it like a shop. What you're funding is someone's uh, work to create something, whether that's a work of art 
or a scientific project or a piece of technology. You're funding that work, which may or may not work out. You are like an investor. And sometimes investments pay off and sometimes they don't. And if you if you think of it that way, instead of, hey, I sent you a check for this thing that I was promised and I still don't have that thing, unless it was something small that was just supposed to be a guaranteed uh, delivery, like you know a keychain or something, then chances are it's because the project didn't work out the way the people had anticipated. So you just have to take that into account. Well, you should think about it like giving a, a gift or giving some money to your friend. You do it because you like your friend, not because you're <laughs> expecting to get something. I charge so much interest on the gifts I give to my friends. And I don't know that you can call it liking, but all right, that's fair. I, I, I kind of understand what you're talking about. So one of the interesting things I came across while looking at how science is funded was some stories about just inefficiency. Uh, the the problems that come upon the administrative side, like let's talk about you are one of those you you run a foundation that gives out money to people who are applying for for scientific grants, but your job is to uh, look at each grant proposal as it comes in and to evaluate it and to decide whether or not this represents a a, a viable scientific experiment. You, you have to figure out – I mean, forget whether or not the outcome is going to benefit someone directly. You just have to decide whether or not it even looks like the group that applies can do what they say they're going to do. That alone is really hard to do. Oh, sure. It's a very specialized job. Um, and should we really trust the general public with making that decision? Yeah, that's another crowdfunding thing is like can – let's say that I, I see something on there about, you know, Bellebob's Cold Fusion Emporium. <laughs> And and it's some guy who's talking about, you know, with a couple of uh, beer cans and some good old American ingenuity, he's going to make a cold fusion reactor. Elbow grease. Yeah. <laughs> Headlight fluid. You you might sit there and think, um, I, you know, I don't I don't have expertise in this field. Uh, so maybe I shouldn't just leap in and assume this person knows what they're talking about. Well, the same is actually true for People who are responsible for granting actual like government grants, private foundation grants, they have to be able to evaluate these things. Not all of them have a background in science necessarily. So that's a challenge. And uh, according to Scientific American, back in 2009, Canada spent $40 million just on determining how to award grant money. $40 million. <laughs> and in fact, they pointed out that it would have been less expensive if they had just given every single applicant that had sent in a grant application the average amount that was granted. So keep in mind, some <laughs> of the grants were smaller, some uh. of the grants were larger, but the average amount was $30,000 Canadian. So if they had, instead of evaluating all of these grant applications, just, said, just get it, given everyone money, yeah, congratulations, you sent in an application, here's your $30,000. That that would have been less expensive than the amount of money they spent evaluating those applications and then sending out the grants. So that just shows you that, you know, in order to do good science, whether you're thinking about it from a, a scientific approach or a funding approach, it's not a simple, you know, yes, no switch. You have to really look at and evaluate this stuff. And uh, and that's why, you know, it's it's a complicated issue. Um, but one other method that was mentioned in that Scientific American article was you could use a lottery system where you have a certain pool of money and that's all all there is and you've figured out what the grant is going to be for any one grant and then essentially they draw lots and then uh, whichever Oof. projects get the winning lots get funded and that means like there's no evaluation whatsoever so you could have 
You could have theory, Billy Bob's Cold Fusion you could Emporium. Have, you could have a whole bunch of Billy Bob's out there, or you could have, have a whole bunch of, you know, life-saving drug research. You, you never know. So there it seems to come down to a question of what's more important, fairness or funding good science. Exactly. And and see, this is the thing, is that there's not an easy answer for this. Oh, sure. And and, and at that point, maybe crowdfunding is the best option. If you if you put it out to a crowd of hopefully increasingly educated people right. and, and say – Hey, um, we want you to be informed about where your money is going because the public is paying for this one way or another. I mean, right. we're, in our taxes, in the products that we buy, in the donations that we make. And so wouldn't it be better overall to have us all making our own educated decisions? I think I think the the bigger that audience gets, the better off we are, because like you say, Lauren, that gives the opportunity for people who are knowledgeable in the field to weigh in one way or the other. And that may not necessarily sway everybody, but it gives me more comfort. Like when I start reading into scientific discussions, I like going to different forums where there are various experts who engage in debate or discussion about the topic because it lets me learn a lot more about it than just reading scientific papers, um, which, you know, some I find really accessible and some I don't. So being able to kind of jump into a community like that, I think is very helpful. Uh, I think crowdfunding overall is uh, an interesting approach. Obviously, it's not going to work for everything. So there's some scientific research that's going to be well beyond the scope of any crowdfunded uh, approach, although you could maybe offset some of it. But I find it pretty positive out overall. I mean, for one thing, it gets people excited about science. And that, to me, is really cool. Well, I guess that wraps up this discussion about where the money for science comes from. If you guys have any suggestions for topics that we've covered or uh, you, you want you want to weigh in on this topic or you want to suggest another one, get in touch with us. You can drop us a line on Google Plus or Facebook or Twitter. We have the handle FWThinking. And our email address should be changing soon. So we'll keep you posted on that once we find out what it is. We'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math and Magic Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. 
like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind-the-scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.